Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. I think I've told you this story before, some of you may remember, but when missionaries go into a foreign culture, they often go through a rigorous process of training and preparation. Uh, They want to take the gospel into an indigenous tribe somewhere, uh, maybe in the Amazon or wherever it may be, and it's not a matter of just learning the language, you've got to learn the culture, you've got to learn who the people are. There's a story about two missionary women that for several years they learned the language of this indigenous um, uh, people groups. Uh, that had never been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ before. Spent several years about learning the culture, and then they slowly went into the culture. And over the period of time, they began to share with them about Jesus and why they were there. And slowly, people were beginning to come to the, to the church and to the, 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 the things that they were holding, Bible studies and things of that nature. And they were having some success for a period of time. But after about a year or so, all of a sudden, some of the women in the community began forbidding their men from hanging out with the women. And slowly they began not coming to the church. And it was going lower and lower and lower. And finally, it it was a a total failure. And the mission agency called the women home. And they went back to the mission agency and they reported, we don't know what happened, this is what what we did, and this is how it went, and we had the success, and things were going great, and all of a sudden, people stopped coming. So the mission agency sent a a couple more missionaries. They trained them up for a couple years and eventually sent them off into this indigenous culture again. And after a little while, this new set of missionaries, they were also having success. Things were going well, and they began to inquire, what happened with the two women earlier? You know, why is it that you guys were going to church with them, but then you stopped going? And it was explained to them that the two missionary women were seen every morning drinking lime juice. And we might go, okay, what's the big... You see, in their culture, lime juice was a morning after contraceptive. If the two missionary women were drinking lime juice every morning, my husband ain't going to be with those women any longer. And shortly after, the church began to fail, and the women were called home. In the book of Acts, we've looked at the sermons in the book of Acts. Uh, We noted that uh, the very first sermon begins in Acts 2 with Peter preaching to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And last week, I noted three things. I noted that the resurrection was a central part of the Christian message. It runs through all the speeches and all the sermons in the book of Acts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. But secondly, when Paul or Peter spoke to the Jewish people, the message centered on Scripture and Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And then thirdly, they often told stories in their speeches. Especially as we proceed, we're going to see some of the stories that they were telling. This morning I want to introduce you to a fourth point, and that is this. That the message was made relevant for the different audiences. The message was made relevant for the different audiences. And so as we turn to Acts chapter 17... We're going to now go to the middle of the chapter, and here's Paul speaking in Greece to Greeks in Athens, the center of philosophy, the center of thinking in the ancient world, and we're going to pick it up in Acts 17, verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship, I I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you're worshiping, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. 
He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a new day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's speech is in Athens. Athens in modern-day Greece is down here in the southern part. Paul had traveled up from uh, Troas to, uh, up to Macedonia, the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, fled for his life from Thessalonica, we, we find out early in chapter 17 in Acts, and went over to Berea, and then he flees down the coast to Athens. It's interesting that there's not a lot of stay in Athens. He, he gives this brief, brief sermon, and then he moves on. We're told a man named Dionysius becomes a Christian because of Paul's speech, but that's it. No founding of a church, no setting up of, of, of anything else. He moves on to Corinth, and Corinth becomes, uh, down here, becomes a center of Christendom for, for, for uh, several years until Paul ventures on to Ephesus later on. Well, why not? Why? I mean, Athens is the capital. It's the major city. It's the, it's the center of thinking and philosophy and logic. And Why does he not stay longer and, and, and establish a church? This is a picture of the Areopagus. It's, it's a stone outcropping in, in, in modern-day Athens, in the city of Athens. Uh, uh, over here to the, to the north side of the, of, the, of the rocks would be where they have the culture and, and uh, philosophers and judges and, and uh, uh, business uh, districts, so, so to speak. But the question is, is, what's Paul doing? What's going on? The first thing to notice is that Paul doesn't cite Scripture. He doesn't begin his sermon by saying, well, let me tell you what the Old Testament says and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it because they don't believe in the Old Testament. Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. They're like, we don't have a Bible, and what's Exodus? He can't start with that commonality because they don't have that commonality. Instead, he makes reference to, well, I was, I was walking around the city and I noticed an altar to an unknown God. You have this inscription to an unknown God. Now, in the city of Rome, there's an altar that was found that says, whether to a god or to a goddess. We don't know whether you're male or female. So in Athens, we don't even know who you are, but you did something, and so we're going to build you an altar to an unknown God. And Paul begins by, by saying, here's what, we, what, what you guys have. Let me take that now and tell you about Jesus. And he begins arguing for the existence of one God. There's only one God. And he doesn't dwell in temples. And from there he goes on and he concludes with the reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, the gospel ends up in there. But he can't start with the Old Testament like Peter did. Or even like Paul did in other cases. Because they don't have that in common. Instead, he finds a point of commonality, and he begins there. 
Now, I won't go into much more detail about how Paul was actually building on Stoic philosophy and Epicurean philosophy and some of the major philosophical ideas that were present in the book of, uh, in the city of Athens. But if we were to read this carefully, we would note, oh, that's actually a reference to Stoicism and that's actually a reference to Epicureanism, but that's beyond us uh, this morning. The point is that even amongst the Gentiles, Paul begins first by finding a point of commonality and then ending with the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't compromise the gospel. He simply presented it in a way that would get their attention and the interest of his leaders, uh, of his listeners. And we can do this today. As we're called to take the gospel to the nations, the first thing we need to do is find a point of commonality. Oh, you believe that there's meaning in the world, well, so do I. And I believe there's meaning in the world because God made the world and he made it intentionally and he put meaning. You see, find a point of commonality and then move on and bring the gospel into the story. I've said many times that my favorite song is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. And many of you love the song. And we hear the song and we stop and we go, oh, I'm convicted. Uh, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we stop and we go, yes, I'm that wretch. And God's amazing grace saved me. The problem is, is that in most of our culture today, the millennials of the world, they hear the song and it doesn't make any sense to them. What do you mean? I'm not a wretch. So if we start with this gospel message of amazing grace, it doesn't actually connect with them because in the world of today, I'm not a wretch. What are you talking about? I was sharing with someone recently that uh, I actually love amazing grace on the bagpipes. I'm Scottish. What can I, what can I say? And the person replied to me, he says, you know what I think of when I hear of amazing grace in the bagpipes? I said, what? He said, I think of a funeral for a police officer. I'm like, I did, wow. For me, what's a, 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 a moment of worship, amazing grace in the bagpipes, was for them a funeral and a moment of somber solace. You see, it's like we're sipping lime juice every morning. Not knowing why the culture won't hear the gospel because you're sipping lime juice. And that means you're doing something wrong. So if you'll indulge me for a minute here, let me kind of give you what I think is really important. Uh, as we begin to apply, how do we apply this today? And how do we take the gospel today to a, a rapidly changing culture? And, and let me, let me, let me kind of give us a, 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 a very brief overview of history and philosophy and thinking, because I think it's very significant. Otherwise, we're going to be singing Amazing Grace, um, and they're going to be going, I don't know what you're talking about. The world is divided up in historical eras, and these historical eras are vague, and you know, no one knows when it actually begins. But the first era is the pre-modern world. In the pre-modern world, and this could go back to the ancient Roman societies and Greeks, and it can go all the way even through the Middle Ages, when Christianity becomes the dominant religion of the time. In the pre-modern world, knowledge was through revelation. How do you know what you know? Is one of the great questions of the philosophers. And in the pre-modern world, we know what we know because God or the gods tell us. In the ancient world, before Christianity, it was the gods who tell us. The gods of Rome or the gods of Greece. Once Christianity becomes in, uh, empowered in the Middle Ages, it was, it was God, it was Jesus, it was the Bible, it was Revelation. During this particular point in time then, most people were either pagans or later on they became Christians in their religion. 
the pagans being the polytheists, the belief in many gods. And later on that evolved to becoming the belief in only one god, namely the god of Christianity. And this becomes the, the main way of thinking for, for over a thousand years. Christianity becomes the official religion in 325, and this continues to last in the Middle Ages up to maybe the year 1500 or so. And again, every one of these eras kind of begins earlier and kind of changes, and the transition takes time. Around the year 1500 or so, just approximately, the beginning of what's called the Enlightenment takes place. Uh, also, modernism. The Enlightenment, at the same time, by the way, it's happening in the, with the Enlightenment, the Reformation is happening in the Protestant world. Uh, Martin Luther and Calvin are, are arguing against the church. You see, the Enlightenment began as a rejection of the church. A, a rejection of the There was corruption in the church. The church was hindering knowledge. The church wasn't allowing for progress. And so the Reformers, Luther and Calvin, said, we're objecting against the church, but we're not rejecting the church. We're rejecting against the corruption in the church, but we believe in the church and we believe in Christ. And so they began this reform movement. Well, in the secular world, they were also arguing against the church. But in doing so, they were rejecting the church. During, the time, the, during this point in time, then, knowledge of the Enlightenment was through revelation and reason. They didn't deny revelation as an important aspect, but they began to see that knowledge was going to be known through reason, whether it's scientific progress or through the philosophers. Uh, there's truth, and we can get truth, but we need it through science or through reason, things of that nature, etc. This begins the idea of the separation of church and state begins to arise in this particular climate. At this point in time, however, religiously, most people remained Christian. The culture was still Christian. The academics, the, society, the, 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 the philosophers, and, uh, and the leading thinkers of the day began to move away from Christianity, but culturally they remained Christian. The early philosophers, Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, was a Christian. Many of the early scientists and, and, and the founders of, sci of the scientific movement, they were Christians in their beliefs. Even though by the academic world, many of them have become to adopt deism, and I won't go into, into the details about that. Now, as the Enlightenment moved on, it, it, it gave birth to what's called modernism. So you have the pre-modern world, then you have the modern world. In the modern world, there was a conviction that uh, we can have an absolute truth and an absolute worldview that's correct, but we have to have the right starting point for that worldview. How do we know what we know? Well, through reason and through, uh, or through science. So we can know things if science tells us. Or we can know things because reason tells us. Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Now, Rene Descartes might have been a Christian, by the way, but he's actually undermining Christianity. I am because he is. I exist because he made us. Instead, it's I exist because I think. And you can see how they're beginning to reject revelation as a source of knowledge and beginning to adopt reason as a sort of knowledge. Now, in the middle of all this, the church begins to embrace modernism. You see, modernism says we can know truth and we can know absolutes. You just have to have the right starting point. The scientist said we have the right starting point. It's science. It's observation. It's experiment. The philosopher said we have the right starting point. It's, it's logic. It's reason. I think, therefore, I am. And the church came along and said, no, we have the right starting point. It's the Bible. 
the church began to embrace this modernist world worldview that we've talked about from time to time. Modernism says there's heaven up there and there's earth down here. There, there's science down here and there's faith up there. The, the separation of, of the worlds and of the spiritual world from the physical world is all part of modernism, but the church began to embrace modernism. The problem is, is that modernism doesn't work. You see, in the middle of the modernist worldview was this idea that we can continue, the Industrial Revolution takes place, right? And, and we're going to create more medicines and, and better products and, and a better society and a better culture. And we're going to create this utopia. Now, the communists said, here's how we create utopia. The socialists said, here's how we create utopia. Right? You know, the, 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 the capitalists said, here's how we create utopia. And we're going to create a world where we have all these cures for all of our medicines and all of our problems and everything's going to go away. And then World War I and World War II happen. And the modernist worldview begins to fall flat on its face. Because what's happening is we not only can make medicines and cures for our diseases, but we can also make bigger and better bombs and we use them. And people began to be disillusioned with modernism. Now, in the middle of all this, by the way, in the 1800s, before World War I and World War II, there were philosophers, you may have heard of, of a man named Nietzsche, and then later on Sartre and Freud, Freud, who began saying, we actually don't even need God anymore. You see, modernism led to a, a rejection of revelation. It started off with revelation and reason, but it eventually became reason only. We only need reason or science. We don't need God. And Nietzsche says in the 1800s, God is dead! God is dead! And we have killed him! This evolution of culture had led to a rejection of God. Yet at the same time, at the level of culture, everyone remained Christian. The, the academy, the thinking up there, begins this rejection of God. But culturally, they remained Christian. And then World War I and World War II take place. And now, we realize things aren't getting better. They might be for some, but colonialism only led to conquest and domination and resources are being exploited and there's materialism abounding everywhere and an increase in slavery and an increase in oppression. And many begin to reject or even at least question the role of government, businesses, and the church. Any institution is to be questioned because it's only out for its own benefit, its own best interest. And this gives rise to what's called postmodernism. And this is why I think this is important, because this is the culture that our children, our youth, and our young people are growing up in, or have grown up in. Postmodernism uh, is a, a, a major, massive, history-making shift in the worldview or in thinking. And we're in the middle of this history-making shift. In other words, in a hundred years from now, they're going to write textbooks about what's going on today. The problem is, is that we're in the middle of it. So we don't even really know exactly what it means or how it works. Think of the name, postmodernism. It just simply means after modernism. We don't know what to call it. Postmodernism is just simply saying, well, we don't believe in modernism anymore. We don't really know what we believe in. It's a rejection of the modernist world thinking that there's absolute truth, that there's absolute knowledge. You just have to have the right starting point. They're like, no, nobody knows. We reject it. 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we'll have a label for it. In the meantime, it's just postmodernism. It actually began with Nietzsche and Freud and Sartre over 150 years ago, but it never filtered down to the culture. The academy believed all this stuff up there, but it never filtered. The culture remained Christian. 
without much of a question or much of a problem. And then all of a sudden, World War I, World War II. In postmodernism, knowledge is personal. There's no more absolute truth. No one knows anything. No one knows. There's nobody that has all the truth. Uh, it, truth is simply something that's individual. I decide for myself. You decide for yourself. If God doesn't exist, after all, then there is no meaning. If God is dead, as Nietzsche said, then nothing can be known. There's no value, there's no meaning, there's no purpose in the world. So I determine right and wrong for myself, and I determine purpose for myself, and you can for yourself. The idea then is that in religion, there's certainly no religion, or maybe all religions are true. Either no religion is true, or all religions are true. Either way, there's no one religion that is indeed true. And you can see now how this is a threat to the very fabric of Christian theology that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's called pluralism. Pluralism is the belief that, that no one has the absolute truth or that there is no absolute truth at all. And what every individual thinks is right for themselves. As a result, they don't trust corporations and governments and institutions, including the church. No one's going to tell me what's right or what's wrong, what's good or what's bad. I'll decide it for myself. This, of course, some of you might be very well familiar with the protest movements in the 1960s. This is the essence of the protest movements of, of the 60s. So why do we say all this? Because in the last 50 years or more, we're experiencing an explosion, not just in technology. The world that our kids are growing up in, or your grandkids are growing up in, is not the world that we grew up in, just from the sense of technology. But it's actually not the world that we grew up in either because of the way we think and the way they think. The younger generation thinks radically differently than we do. Their values are radically different than ours. Their likes are radically different than ours. You see, we come to believe that Jesus is the truth. I hear amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and I'm convicted. But if you're a pluralist, and, and no one decides right and wrong except for themselves, then you compare yourself to everybody else, and you look and you go, I'm not a wretch. I don't know about you, but I'm not. Because I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not, I'm not one of those evil dictators. I'm not oppressing people. Like I'm okay. And all of a sudden, the songs that we sing and the things that we're doing are like sipping lime juice every morning. So the question becomes then, how do we proclaim the gospel in the 21st century? Part of the problem is, answering this question is difficult because we're in the midst of this revolution. S some of our kids think this way and some of our kids still kind of hold on to the old values that we, we held to. Some of you have been raised in the church and have continued to embrace a more modernistic thinking, but some of you have been raised in a secular culture and have embraced a post-modernist thinking and the, all the variation forms of it. So it's hard to answer the question. We see during the rise of this postmodern worldview, megachurches. And, and megachurches come on, on the scene and say, here's what we'll do. We'll provide for all of your wants and all of your desires and all of your passions. We'll give you dynamic youth groups and kids groups and children's things and, and, and entertaining this and entertaining that. And megachurches arose because they were meeting this felt need. But megachurches probably won't last too long. There are serious questions that megachurches sometimes are answering and sometimes they're not answering. I spent eight years as a pastor in a megachurch. I've experienced this. So here are some things I think that we can hold on to. Number one, the gospel and discipleship remain the perfect answer for the world. Paul walked in the middle of Athens, 
with gods everywhere, including, we don't even know what this God's name is, and said, let me tell you who this God is, and proclaim the gospel. We don't compromise the gospel. And so the gospel and discipleship remain the perfect answer for the world. The gospel begins with Jesus, right? The gospel is Jesus is Lord. The Jesus that held that little girl's hand and said, get up. The Jesus that, that touched the coffin and told that woman's child to, to, to arise. The, the Jesus that fed thousands. The Jesus that said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing when he was being crucified. That Jesus is appealing to everyone. And that Jesus they want. Most in our society, most in our culture, want a Jesus like that. But the idea of discipleship which is what the gospel calls us to do, make disciples of all, nation, of all nations. Discipleship is about building relationships and building community. And I said last week, I said, hey, just go tell them their, your story and, and then listen to them and build a relationship with them. The, the generation that's growing up today wants dynamic relationships, genuine relationships. They want people to come alongside them that care about them. They seek and desire community. Millennials, by the way, not only desire a community, they desire a diverse community. Because, you see, in the pluralistic worldview, if everyone decides right and wrong for themselves, they come to value everyone's thoughts and opinions. And what's amazing is that the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, male and female. The church is a one body in Christ made up of absolute diversity. And I think it's tragic sometimes, in some ways that the African-Americans are worshiping over there, and the Koreans are worshiping over there, and the whites are worshiping over there, and the poor church over there, right? That we've segregated ourselves when the one thing we are by our very nature is a body of diverse people. Amen. And that diversity appeals to the younger generation. And I don't I mean to say, by the way, that African-Americans worshiping over there and Koreans worshiping over there is necessarily or inherently bad. We have a Spanish congregation that meets here at 2 in the afternoons because they don't speak English. We have to have some uh, diversity, and there is some sense where there are cultural differences amongst us, and we can respect that. The second thing is this. The gospel story is the perfect story of justice, which is a core value today of postmodernists. Remember, postmodernism or millennialism arose because they saw the injustices that were happening as a, excuse me, as a result of modernism. World War I and World War II are wrong. We reject that. And the gospel story says, let me tell you about Jesus. That through Jesus and through his death and suffering, God is restoring his creation. Interestingly, the one thing that the millennials crave about justice is the very thing that the society can't actually provide. Society provides justice, but it's only temporary, and it's only justice for some, and it's often justice at the expense of somebody else. But Jesus provides justice for all. Thirdly, the gospel story is a story about meaning and value and purpose. The one thing that millennials lack the most. You see, Nietzsche knew it. If God is dead, God is dead because we have killed him, then that means that everything is meaningless. There is no meaning. There is, we just happen to exist because we exist. There's no cause. There's no purpose. There's no value inherent in creation. It, it's desperation. It's despair. So millennials grow up in this worldview of saying, we don't have meaning, value, and purpose inherent in our, in our worldview, so I'll create it. And, and they often strive for meaning, value, and purpose. Maybe with, with my job. 
in my, my education or with my family or with my home. Uh, the things I own. They're trying to find meaning and value and purpose in things. And then their homes end up broken. Or their marriages dissolve. Or they lose their house. Or maybe they can't get a good enough education. And they end up in despair. And yet the gospel tells us that there's meaning in this world. The very thing they're seeking for because God made the world. And there's value in humanity because we're made in His image. And there's purpose because we've been called to bear His image and make Him known. And you see, the gospel story is meaning, value, and purpose. The thing they long for the most. So the question becomes, well, how do we get them to come? And the first answer is this. Many of them won't come. We're not going to get them to come to church. They've grown up in a world that says church is not important. They reject governments, corporations, industries, and institutions, including the church. They don't trust the church. And because they're trying to find meaning, value, and purpose in, in their jobs, in their families, in their securities, in their possessions, they're often too busy to come to church. They don't have time for church. And for others, they would conclude, why would I go to church and spend an hour and a half or two hours, you know, time getting ready, time driving, time going in, time going out, when I can sit at home and watch a better sermon than that preacher can give me? It's true. I know, not me, but we're talking about somebody else. Oh, no. Look, hey, Pastor Rob might be great, but I can get this sermon online in 30 minutes and it's a lot better. They may not come, by the way, for a long time. They may only come because you have built a relationship with them. You've heard their stories. You've told them your stories. You've connected with them over coffee and maybe dinner and maybe games and maybe fellowships and maybe going to their kids, whatever it might be. And they begin to build trust. And then you invite them to a women's event or a men's event or an outreach event. And they begin to embrace them in the community. But if they do come, it says a lot. If they do come, it says a lot. You see, years ago, people went to church because that's what you were supposed to do. And, and, and if you didn't go for several months, you might feel guilty. And you're like, okay, I'll go. At least it'll make me look good in society. Or my parents will think okay of me or my neighbors because I, I go to church every couple of months. Billy Graham can do a crusade and thousands and tens of thousands of people will show up. But if Billy Graham or people like him were to do a crusade today, they won't show up. They don't think they need Jesus. They don't think they need the church. They don't respect the church. So the first thing that we must do is this. We must create spaces where they can connect. The one of the major things that many in the younger generations want is community. And so we can build relationships with them. It's not enough just to greet them when they come in and say, hey, welcome here, but to get to know them. Learn their names. Get their phone numbers over time and call them up and take them out to lunch or to coffee. Find out who they are. Tell them your story and build relationships with them. If they build a relationship, if you or we build relationships with them, then maybe they'll come back because they have a reason to come back. I want to go there because I crave relationships and I know people there who care about me and I enjoy being with. Number two, we must create opportunities for them to encounter Christ. 
Paul's approach in Athens was to find a, a point of commonality. And he began there. Hey, let me tell you about this unknown God. And then he builds on that. We must find a point of commonality and begin there. One of the questions of history that I've already addressed is how do we, how do we know what we know? In the pre-modern world, we know because of revelation. In the modern world, in the uh, um, world of the Enlightenment, we know because of reason or because of science. In the postmodern world, is we don't even know at all. And if we do know, it's only what I know myself. And it's individualistic. And as a result, many millennials will believe only what they believe because of their own personal experiences. I've experienced this, therefore I think it's true. And that could be good or it could be bad. One of the questions that I hear oftentimes, and I, and I understand, is, you know, why are contemporary songs so repetitious and so long? Well, because remember, in our generation, we believe because we hear the words of the song and we resonate with the truth of the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I'm convicted and I'm, I'm at work because I hear that's, that's all I need to hear. And that's why it's my favorite song. It's because of those three lines. How, how grace saved a wretch like me. But you see, millennials aren't going to do that because they don't think they're wretches. But they believe because of experiences. And one of the reasons why a lot of contemporary songs are so repetitious is because they're trying to create an environment of experience. And a lot of us, especially Presbyterians, we're like, no, experience can't be trusted. And there's a truth that experience can't be trusted. But experience is often how they encounter Christ. I've shared with you before that, that if you study, talk to missionaries around the world, one of the best ways to reach a Muslim is to pray that God gives them a dream. It's universal in the Islamic world to pray for Muslims because you can't talk to them as much about Jesus too far, but if they have a dream. And I share with you about Kayvon, a man that I was witnessing to and sharing the gospel with for, for months and months and months. And he had a dream. And he came to me and said, I need to be baptized immediately. Number three, which I don't have a slide for. <laughs> Let me tell you what it is. Give them opportunities to make a difference. Give them opportunities to make a difference. Okay. Find out the things that matter to them and join them in their work. You see, Paul didn't walk into Athens and go, you guys are just stupid. I mean, you guys got gods everywhere. Don't you know that the gods are always the problem? He didn't start that way. He said, let me tell you about this. And I know you Stoics believe this. Let me tell you about this. And I know you Epicureans believe this. Let me tell you about this. And then he said, and then God has proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. He took what they already agreed on, and then he acknowledged the truth in that, but how it needed to be morphed into an understanding of the true, the one true God. So find points of common interest. Things that make a difference for them are environmentalist issues and justice issues. And we're about to hear in, in, in a bit in our, in our luncheon about, about justice opportunities in our own city. They long to do justice. If the church supported organizations like we're going to hear about that work against sex trafficking in our own city, it might actually give us a voice to reach that younger generation that right now we don't, probably don't have a voice to. And then the Bible becomes relevant to them. And then we become relevant to them. But if we don't care about the things that matter to them, then why should they care about the things that matter to us? 
Invite them to learn more about the story of Jesus. Because Jesus is appealing. Invite them just to sit down with you. Maybe after a couple of times you got to know them and they got to know you. And Hey, let's just read the Gospel of Luke together. No agenda. Just read. I did this with, the, with that Muslim gentleman I was telling you about. We, I said, hey, let's do a Bible study together. He said, okay, great. We sat down, we read. He would read. Gospel of Matthew, just start reading. And then he stopped. Well, what's this mean? Oh, that's what I mean. Okay, great. And then he just keep reading. No agenda. No, I'm not going to have any lesson plan. Nothing at all. I don't have to have any answers. Just let him read the scriptures. And show them who Jesus is. Because Jesus is appealing. So I know and I recognize that, you know, when we do contemporary songs and, and, and traditional songs, that it's hard. And some of you resonate with the traditional songs, and some of you resonate with the contemporary songs. And here's what I would encourage you, that's this. You see, we're not talking about a generational gap where my parents liked Elvis Presley and I liked the Bee Gees. Sorry, stay in life. Stay, okay. I grew up in a different world of different music than they did. And we often think, well, that's the difference between the young people and the old people, uh, older generations, is they like traditional music and they like contemporary music. It's not a simply a generational issue. It's a radical transformation in worldviews. So that some of the old songs that we're singing that I love and you love don't even make sense to them. We have to allow them to have an opportunity where maybe they can have an experience of Jesus. So what happens then is this. If there's a song that you don't resonate with, Number one, rejoice that somebody else, it might resonate with somebody else. It might make a difference to somebody else. They might be connecting with Jesus right now. And two, pray for them. And then when there's a song that you're enjoying, then they can stop and rejoice that you are worshiping now. And together, we can create a, a diverse, unified people that love and embrace the next generation. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and your love and your mercy. And Lord, in some ways, we wish it were, we wish it were 60 years ago and we could just do things the way we always did because it seemed to work. When the culture accepted the gospel and Christianity as a basic platform, but now, maybe in some ways, it's better. Because we all know many people that just thought they were Christians back then, and we all know that they didn't have any real, real notion of who Jesus really was. And maybe it's, maybe it's better in some ways that, that our culture acknowledges that they don't know Jesus. But that also makes it harder, Lord. And so we ask that, Gospel Matthew says, that when we approach those situations, that we're to rely upon your Holy Spirit to give us the words to say, as Paul says in Colossians, to make the most of every opportunity. Let our conversation be seasoned, as it were, with salt. Lord, I've expressed many times to this congregation and, and others my passion that my brother comes to know Jesus Christ. And many in this room have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and maybe even husbands or wives. Certainly we have neighbors and co-workers and fellow students and friends. And we ask, Lord, that you would use us to be the eyes, ears, mouth, face, and feet, and hands of Jesus Christ. Them. Help us to, to navigate the, the diversity even within our own congregation, young and old. Different races, different genders, different socioeconomic groupings. 
and help us to love and embrace one another that the gospel might flourish in Bakersfield and beyond. Bless Pastor Ricardo and that congregation this afternoon in the Grove this evening, that the gospel might also flourish in those churches as well. And even Pastor Jeff at First Presbyterian down the street and other pastors that we all know and churches in our, in, in, that the gospel might flourish, Lord Jesus, that your kingdom might come. I don't care what church my brother goes to. I just want him to know Jesus. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.